Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. This quail species has a long head plume that gives a clue to its attitude. When the plume is angled backward, the bird is typically relaxed, feeding, or resting like a bird dog with its ears down. When the plume sticks straight up, the bird is agitated or alert. This quail species we we don't know as much about as a lot of the other birds. Me in particular, I don't know a lot uh, about this bird other than what I've read on the internet. And that has got me super excited to learn today because the species, as we continue our Western quail species deep dive, the species of our focus today is the mountain quail, the largest of the quail species. And joining us for this episode of On the Wing Podcast, our Western Regional Director, Al Iden, is back in the saddle, riding co-host. And our featured guest, Oregon biologist, Michael, Michael Klein of the Oregon Fish, Game, and Wildlife Department. Uh, Michael, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Bob. So um, tell us a little bit about uh, yourself to, to kick us off. Um, you know, where, where'd you grow up and how'd you end up um, uh, in Oregon with the Department of Fish and Wildlife? Yeah, well, you know, I've, I've been a game bird biologist um, through my whole career. Um, I come out of eastern Montana. I grew up in a little town called Ekalaka about 400 people, uh, middle of nowhere, southeastern corner. So, but maybe some maybe some of your listeners have have uh, hunted sharpies out there in that country. Um, it's uh, it's pretty remote. Um, but I grew up on a ranch out there. And uh, but then when I left for college, I, I went to Texas. I got out of town. <laughs> uh, I, I I'm a rice owl. Um, and uh, and while I was in Houston. Um, I got a job at the Houston Zoo hand-raising endangered prairie chickens. So you've got the Atwater's prairie chicken, um, which is a coastal species of prairie chicken down there. And so so uh, that's how I dipped my toe in the, the game bird pool. And that led to more prairie chicken jobs and uh, spent some time uh, 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 tracking bobwhite quail at Ames Plantation, where they run the nationals. Um, and so, so as those bird dogs would blow by cubbies, we, we'd follow behind them. We had those, the birds, um, radioed and, and say, <clears throat> no, well, you missed this cubby. You missed that cubby. Uh, your dog was running a hundred miles an hour. <laughs> so that was kind of fun. Um, uh, th and then I spent some time in the waterfowl world, um, did my master's on urban Canada geese out of the Chicago area. Hmm. And that's that's uh, the, I bring that up because that's how I wound up in Oregon. My my master's um, advisor um, became the waterfowl professor at Oregon State. So that's Bruce Duggar, and he um, he brought um, us students that hadn't finished up out to Oregon with him. And I've been here ever since. Well, <clears throat> I took a job uh, with with uh, State of Washington for about six years as their waterfowl specialist, and then six years with the Turkey Federation. So I know a lot about turkeys. Um, and then uh, 
I got my dream job in 2018 as the Upland Game Bird Coordinator for the uh, Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. So I'm I'm right where I want to be, and I, I love this job. You have an absolutely fascinating background. Atwater's Prairie Chicken to the Ames Plantation and Bob Lloyd's Water. Geese in, in Chicago. I there's so many, so many directions I want to pull on there. So let, let, let's start with Atwater's Prairie Chicken. Tell us, um, you know, we haven't ever talked about Atwater's ah. Prairie Chicken. Talk, talked about lesser, talked about greater. Tell us what, uh, what's unique about the Atwater's Prairie Chicken. Well, Atwater's are a coastal subspecies of, um, of prairie chickens. And uh, they kind of look like the greater, um, but they were, uh, you know, frankly, they've they've been extirpated from their from their original habitat, and so I don't know. Maybe back in the '90s, if I remember right, um, maybe late '80s, they gathered up the remaining individuals and put them into captive um, breeding programs. And so the Houston Zoo was one of those fossil rim wildlife area. I think um, I think Sutton, um, uh, the George Sutton facility over in Oklahoma, does a lot of that now. Um, the captive rearing, so um, they would. Uh, they would, uh, you know, get fertilized eggs and and put them in the incubator, and we'd raise up as many as we could and turn them back loose on the Atwater um, uh, National Wildlife Refuge, um, huh. so Texas. But they've had a heck of a time. Everything, you know, the habitats changed. They have fire ants now, uh, which is a huge problem for nest success. Um, they've got every every anything and everything that would eat a prairie chicken is is there, and and then and then there were hurricanes and. It's mm. been a, it's been a it's a rough go. If you're an Atwater's biologist, it's um, things are a little are a little bloomy. So, but they are figuring out how um, how to be more successful in turning those captive reared birds loose. And then you go from there to the Ames Plantation. Do you have a a bird dog background, or was it the the biology for for, <clears throat> for upland birds that brought you to Ames? Well. I'll be honest, I'm, I'm an adult onset hunter. And so that Ames plantation is where I shot my first hen mallard, <laughs> shot <Huh>. my first dove. <laughs> um, and so some of those good old boys back there, they, they took me under their wing and, and showed me the ropes. And so that was really an influential time for me um, hmm. to, to go um, spend some time with those, those uh, Tennessee folks that, um, you know, despite the fact that I grew up in Montana, you know, uh, I just, you know, my, my family weren't big hunters and, and typically the boys went and the girls didn't kind of thing. So, um, so I didn't pick that up until, until I went to Ames and, um, and anyway, that, that was, uh, I've, I've got, I could write a book on that, um, of those, those first experiences going frog gigging and, and, uh, and them having to point out which ones were the cotton mouths and which ones were the frogs, um. Uh, that yeah <laughs> so so th those were those were really formative experiences and and you know i i've i've uh, i stuck with it i gathered up a nice um hunting repertoire and especially my time with the turkey federation they they made sure that i got out and did plenty of turkey hunting as well so <laughs> what was your what was your role with uh, the turkey federation i was a biologist for the pacific northwest so i covered oregon washington and idaho and awesome. we did a lot of habitat forestry projects and um and that was it was a great role um taught me taught me a lot about um forested habitats which i really hadn't gathered up until that point um because of uh you know i was working with canada geese and 
yeah. and quail and things like that. So, all right, tell me a little bit more about Canada geese in, in Chicago. Yeah, great question. So um, after the, the Ames project, um, I, I realized that I couldn't keep doing three-month seasonal gigs mm -hmm. um, for the rest of my life. It was time to... Um, it was time to elevate my game a little bit. So I, I was looking for um, a funded master's project so I didn't have to go um, go shaking any trees. And and this one was actually pretty close by. Carbondale is really not that far from Grand Junction. Um, mm. And so I, I drove over there one day and interviewed and um, talked myself into this position. And, um, and they were trying to get a, a handle on on the population dynamics of giant Canada geese in Chicago. And, and uh, we figured they had about 10,000 breeding pairs in the Chicago oh. area alone in those, in those days is probably more now. And uh, uh, my job was to figure out the nest success, um, the productivity of these Canada geese. And so I had, I had hundreds of study sites. I'd have to call up golf courses and corporate campuses, um, apartment complexes, parks um and and explain to them what we were doing it was just it was a thousand cold calls um to and uh i spent a lot of time in a canoe in those days my <laughs> arms were so strong <laughs> taking that canoe on and off the the top of the the top of the truck uh, all the yeah and we found a couple thousand nests and we monitored the fate of of those eggs and uh and it was a great project um and uh yeah, but maybe a little uh, non-traditional. So it, you talked about the the fact that you have your dream job right now as the Oregon upland bird uh, biologist. How long have you known that that's your dream job? What um, tell us about why it's your dream job? Uh, well. Upland birds are just fascinating. And, you know, those days working on Atwaters, and I didn't mention that I spent some time in Roswell um, working on lesser prairie chickens too. And and those mornings sitting out there watching those birds uh, run around on the lek, making crazy sounds and all these fascinating behaviors, I was just hooked. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I just can't get enough. They're all, they're all special and unique. Um, and I, I just find their biology fascinating. And, and I just like, I'm really pulling for these birds. I want them to, I want them to succeed. And, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to see things like, like sage grouse really struggling mm. and, uh, you know, having seen, you know, what can happen like with Atwaters. Um, I, I'm really cheering for these birds and I want to, you know, I want to do my part um, to, to really uh, help people appreciate and understand them um, as well as, as work on the conservation um, side of it. That, that's admirable and wonderful. Uh, it's music to our ears from an organization like like Quail Forever and, and Pheasants Forever. So let's let's um, help people appreciate. So I, I would say arguably the most under um, appreciated or least known of the quail species, and that's the mountain quail. And it's no no um, surprise that we would go to Oregon to talk specifically about the mountain quail because it's probably the state with the highest population that of, of mountain quail so let's let's talk first about the geography if we could put the epicenter in oregon where would you put the pin dot as the highest population and then help us understand the geographic range of the mountain quail 
You bet. Um, yeah, the the real core of the population is in the southwest part of the state. So um, if you know where Medford or Roseburg, Oregon is, um, that's that that would be the real epicenter. So that would be the Umpqua and the Rogue uh, National Forest, um, the, those areas. So there's uh, we have two mountain ranges in the vicinity. You have the Coast Range, which is the furthest west, and then you have the Cascade Range, uh, which is a little bit further inland. Um, and certainly the coast range is just full of mountain quail and then and portions of the Cascades as well. Um, mountain quail range all the way from um, Vancouver Island through uh, parts of and pieces of Washington, all of um, of Western Oregon, plus some some populations that we've got reestablished in the eastern part of the state. And then, Bob, they go all the way down to Baja, California. Hmm. So um, they're pretty much a, a Western, far Western species. It, it looks like when I look look them up on sort of the Cornell um, website, it looks like there's even maybe pockets of them in Idaho. Uh, yeah, that that's accurate? true. I didn't mention that. Um, Idaho and Nevada is trying to get their populations um, reestablished as well. So, uh, yeah, they're, th that's their historic range. And for for whatever reason, they uh, they lost a foothold in in some of those um, more arid areas. And hmm. whether it, whether they were droughted out or, you know, there is some line of thinking that um, that it was um, early grazing practices that really hammered the riparian that that maybe made it hard for them to live in those drier places. Um, quail need water. We I think we all we all know that, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and they need cover. So uh, if if those two things are missing, then your quail are probably going to go away. But when you think about the geography from Vancouver Island to Baja California, um, in Granted, I'm a Midwesterner, so I don't understand the climate as well as you do. But that would seem pretty, uh, pretty a pretty seismic difference between the far northern range, where in, in the mountains where there's snow in a pure winter, versus what I envision a Baja of you know seventy and sunny every single day of the <laughs> year. So they must be pretty tolerant to a major swing in, in temperature and in, in weather. Um, is, is that accurate? Well, yeah, what's what's interesting about mountain quail and, and sort of unique about them is that they practice an elevational migration um, out of, you know, out of the highest elevations and down to uh, slightly warmer climates in the wintertime. So that's kind of special about them because they do utilize those high elevations, um, but uh, they're not going to spend all winter up on the tip of the Sierras or anything. So, so they, um, they are adaptable in that way and uh, something kind of unique about their biology. Yeah. I, I read that, that, you know, as the winter progresses, they move down to more desert type um, uh, climates, landscapes. And it, that is pretty fascinating. If you think about how elk migrate down um, a mountain, I, I mean, it's, it's maybe preposterous to say, but there's a, there's a parallel there, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, and turkeys do the same thing too. So they they nest up high and they winter down low. So um, they're not they're not migratory species as as we think of it, but um, but they do they do that that elevational migration. Yeah. So probably the most distinct thing about mountain quail, at least in my surface research, is the fact that the biggest mountain or the the biggest of the quail species, largest, and like like a lot of other species, they have 
top knot that have top knots. The mountain quail's top knot seems, I mean, it appears different than a lot of the other um, quail species. Talk about the the appearance of mountain quail. What what uh, is interesting to you about it? Yeah, well, you're 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 partially right about them being the uh, world record quail. So they are the largest. Um, species of quail in North America, north of Mexico. So there's some species of wood quail, I think, down in Mexico that are mm. that are um, larger than mountain quail. So um, I've never seen one. I'd love to though. That would that may be future road trip. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, they're they're gorgeous birds. They don't have the question mark shaped top knot like we see in gambles and California quail. Um, it's it's more of a straight plume. It's actually and if you have one in hand, it's, you'll see it's actually made up of two feathers. Huh. Um, and then, um, what I, what I, uh, love about mountain quail is the, the chestnut markings. So they have kind of a, a, chestnut throat and then their, their flanks have, um, have these beautiful, um, chestnut stripes and, uh, I, they're just a gorgeous bird. They're gray and, and rusty brown and, um, white and black. And they're just, they're just so handsome. There's a blueness to them too. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned gray, but when I looked at photos, there's different shades of blue there. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot, go there's a lot going on there. Mm -hmm. Um, plumage wise, they're just, they're gorgeous birds. You talked about the, the top knot being two feathers and I opened the show with, uh, how it indicates their attitude or their, is that, it's not a question I've ever asked um, when we've done podcasts about gambles or, you know, other species, valley quail that have the top knots. Is that true of those other Western quail species that have top knots that it indicates mood or is that unique to mountain quail? Honestly, Bob, I have no idea. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if, if, uh, if I could answer that, honestly. Um, yeah, I, I, I really don't know, uh, how to tell what mood a mountain quail is in. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the best answer of all. <laughs> um, um, all right. So, so let's, let's do the deep dive on the biology of mountain quail. Let's talk about, um, you know, when they reproduce, what, you know, um, what they're looking for in a nest, what the hens are looking for in a nest, um, number of eggs, walk us through reproduction. Okay. Well, um, you know, we, we talked about how we've got a pretty wide geographic range latitudinally, right? North mm -hmm. to South. And so um, your peak nesting is going to um, get later and later, the further North you move um, as, you know, and it's probably related to length of daylight, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I think it's probably fair to say that, that, um, that, your earliest, very earliest nest, maybe on the southern edge, would be um, sometime in March. Um, but your peak hatch is going to be more, more like May around around these parts. Okay. Um, and you know, the females looking for a nest site. The nests aren't super complicated. They're just kind of a bowl that's in a, a quail torso shape. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, uh, um, but they're going to be well hidden um, with with lots of good overhead structure. They don't want any sunlight um, really shining on their on their nest. So, uh, and then they're going to have maybe a little pathway going in there. Hmm. Um, it, when we move birds to eastern Oregon, where you don't quite have as much cover, 
Um, we had actually found nests that were um, under rock structures. So that's kind mm. of interesting. So they hollowed out a, a space under under some rim rocks and and um, put some eggs down. So uh, I think, you know, just cover is really important as far as that goes. And then she'll lay, um, oh, I don't know, 10 to 12 eggs um, per nest bowl. She has the ability to to lay up to 20, 22 eggs in a season. Hmm. And um, and in some, some cases, we've seen the birds do what we call simultaneous double clutching. Um, so she'll lay, um, she'll lay a nest for the male and a nest for herself, and they'll both incubate, um, those nests at the same time. And I think that's, um, one of the reasons that we were able to get mountain quail reestablished, um, is that they have the potential to be really productive, right? In a good year, they can, they can really make it happen. So is it true a mountain quail, like most gallinaceous birds, if they lose, say their nest gets predated, they'll lay down another nest um they'll re-nest but if they if the bird if the chicks hatch and then get predated they're they're done for that um reproductive season is that true of mountain quail yeah i i don't know for sure bob if if um you know for example if the female hatched a clutch that she could hand it off to the male and then go and then go do another one. Um, I don't know if we know for sure um, mm. with mountain quail if if that's a strategy that they that they might employ. Um, so there's a lot we really don't know about mountain quail. They're they're not that well studied, um, partially because of the habitats that they live in are are so rough. Um, they're really hard to observe. Well, so you perfect transition. Um, talk <laughs> talk about the habitat because you. Okay, they're named mountain quail, so you assume there's there's a mountain component to that. But what's um what what kind of cover do they live in? And I'm assuming that also changes based on time of the year if they're a, a, a migratory to some extent uh, species. So so tell us about the habitat for mountain quail. Yeah, well, I guess folks should think about the steepest, brushiest, nastiest um, place they could imagine. <laughs> and that's where you're going to want to uh, look for mountain quail. They don't, they're not in the trees uh, necessarily, they're in the brush. Um, and, or maybe, maybe young regrowth, um, mm. you know, post clear cut, that sort of thing. Here in Oregon, we do a lot of forestry and there's, there's um, a lot of, forest patches that are in various stages of regrowth and, you know, anything over about as, you know, as tall as your head, I, I think they're going to start leaving those, those places. Um, there's, you know, places with, we have a lot of um, Himalayan blackberry that's invasive here, um, but it's probably, a, it's pretty good cover and pretty good food, food resource. So you'll find them, you'll find them in um, places where there's a lot of brambles and hmm. nasty stuff that but um you know perennial shrub cover um with lots of good forbs um fruits and berries um but they're not going to be in the in the old growth or anything like okay. that okay so again forgive my midwestern uh background but that it sounds like in you know if i think about what creates habitat for rough grouse right it it sounds like it's it's similar logging um early successional but you know, rough grouse kind of the prime time is that 10 to 15 year old aspen where what what I think I heard from you is like it actually the prime habitat for mountain quail is before it gets to that 10 to 15 year old like 
um, structure that's like you mentioned over your head. It's it's more almost immediately after um, logging occurs. Yeah, probably three to three to five, 10 years and then and then move on. So so, yeah, it's logging or, or any other kind of disturbance that, you know, that maybe occurs naturally is, um, is has the potential to create mountain quail habitat. So, hmm. um, you know, some of these forests where they live, it can be, um, you know, there can be quite a bit of precip and, and those those forests may not be that fire prone. But every once in a while, um, we'll have a fire burn through and then that's going to come back as brush as well. Um, or you'll have a big blowdown event or an ice storm, um, mm. things like that. Anything that takes the timber down, then the brush is going to be the, the the thing that follows. And and that's when the quail can can really capitalize on, on that disturbance. It, you're leading me perfectly along my train of thought here. Because <laughs> I should start my own podcast, <laughs> Yeah, you should. Your background, you, I mean, we could do six podcasts about all the different species you've worked on. But, but you you led me to you, you talked about blowdowns and, and storms that maybe knock down trees. We talked a little bit about logging, talked about fire. What what is the habitat management recipe for mountain quail? It, it, so in a person in your posi- position, how can you influence populations and an organization like ours, uh, Quail Forever Chapters? Uh, is there a role that they can play in helping produce better habitat for mountain quail? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. Um, you know, in, in the places where mountain quail are really thriving, there's there's really not much that we need to do because the natural processes really, really do take care of it. But when we start looking at the edge of um, of the range of mountain quail, so, so I'm going to use Eastern Oregon as an example, um, what we really need to do is keep those riparian areas very healthy. Hmm. Um and and so uh, there, you know, the the areas that they can use in in Eastern Oregon, you you know, if you can imagine, um, you know, you're in in steep steep country with um, with nice riparian um, shrubs and and that sort of thing. That's where your your mountain quail are, but they don't have as much flexibility in their habitat um, because then you get out into the sage and there's um, and and they kind of run out of what they need to okay. eat and. And so, um, so it really comes down to keeping uh, those riparian areas healthy, and so encouraging um, good grazing practices, um, and you know, or fencing off some of those areas, keep them to keep them from from getting uh, overcowed um, is is important. Mm. And, uh, and it, that's something that the NRCS has done a really good job of, and has probably made all the difference in allowing us to bring quail back. Um, just uh, you know, really encouraging and and um, and compensating um, folks for for um, doing a you know for protecting those riparian areas, fencing them off, and getting credit for doing that. So I'm assuming there's a I mean the cattle that are in those areas, there's a role for them to play because you want some of the grazing so you don't have um, forests develop in old growth where it's not suitable habitat, but there's a balance there, as you mentioned, between it's, I was, you know, it's probably rocky soil and it's hard to, um, you know, it really, and there's probably some moisture, um, not restrictions, but limitations. So it doesn't just, uh, grow up super fast. So it's a really tough balance between using cattle for management, but not, not overdoing it. Is that a correct yeah, assumption? Right. Um, 
Yeah, and I, I'm definitely not here to bag on on ranchers. I uh, that's 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 my roots, and um, I, what I'm really do is doing is just comparing the old school grazing practices to what we do today. Mm. Um, and so back in the day, our stocking rates were were probably too high, and um, and uh, the cows weren't managed in in um, in the same way that that we do now, especially for folks that are grazing on public land. Um, and so that, that's all I'm really, really trying to highlight here is that um, I think that our ranchers do a lot better job these days. Um, and and that's really has made a huge difference in, in the health of those riparian areas. And and, um, and I'm sure they recognize that it's important to keep those in, in good shape as well. Right, right. So you talk about riparian areas. You, you also made the comment earlier about quail and water go hand in hand, right? That, that's the major limiting factor. So when when I'm thinking about riparian areas of a, of a mountain um, quail, are we think are, are you talking like mountain streams coming out of the out of the hills and, and flowing? I mean, is so if if you're trying to locate quail, mountain quail from a hunting perspective, that you know we talked about um, gambles, you know key in on washes same thing with scalies pretty it sounds like you're leading me down the same path for mountain quail like <laughs> you found you find a mountain stream with vegetation that's not over your head brushy um maybe some cattle in there to, to you know keep it diverse and, and managed and you might be on the track to finding um where the mountain quail yeah, you know, I think in in Western Oregon, the birds really aren't that water limited mm. um, because it's it is just a, it's just a wetter area. And uh, but in in Eastern Oregon, where we can now hunt mountain quail in every in every county of the state now, I'm super proud of that. Um, we have mountain quail in every county. Um, then yeah, you're you're going to want to key in on on those um, those wet areas, especially if you're hunting in more arid conditions but honestly in 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 western oregon they're kind of where they are where you find them <laughs> <laughs> and uh, i don't i don't think they're super water limited um, uh, because they're they're able to find water throughout their whole and throughout their environment um and so if you're trying to locate a covey um i i do have some advice for folks um you know as you're going in new to an area um you want to you want to get out there pretty early in the morning mm. when the birds birds are vocalizing. That's helpful. Um, so so get online and listen to a to what a mountain quail uh, crow sounds like and um, and and memorize that. You can even imitate that. There's little whistles that you can that you can find and you can imitate them and try to get them to to call back. And that's a really good way to to try to locate cubbies if you haven't found them. Um, probably, you know, go higher than you think you need to go in huh. terms of elevation. Um, you know, get, get yourself up, um, you know, almost to the snow line probably. Um, and then look for footprints, um, in the snow or in the mud as you're driving along the road. Um, anything, any sign as you're driving or walking or whatever, um, just try to find that sign so that you know that there's a covey in the area and then you can, and then just start walking uphill. <laughs> and uh these these birds are um they like to run rather than fly uh unfortunately so um so honestly having a dog is pretty is is pretty 
um, important, I think, for for mountain quail hunting. I'm sure there's folks that 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 um, can do it and have done it. Um, but man, some of the some of the the habitat is so um, is so rough. I, I feel like retrieving is just going to be a real challenge. And we've talked about you know some of these quail species like gambles and scalies in particular. Um, their propensity to run, 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 and then run some more. Um, that's that's not the the kind of the the um, that's not what mountain quail are known for. Mountain quail hold a little bit tighter, don't they? I don't know if that's true or not, Bob. Um, they they are runners, okay. um, and, and I think you can get them to hold. Um, they don't love to flush, and I I think that just kind of indicates something about their life history that that they tend to have a lot of avian predators, mm. and so it's not a best interest to flush <laughs> so <laughs> so they, they definitely will but um but maybe after they've been on the run for a little bit um interesting thing about mountain quail they're actually more efficient running uphill than on a flat surface huh. they are built they're built for running up uphill so um just kind of a, a funny little tidbit but they're um yeah they they will run and so uh so yeah you have to um, so have, again, having a dog is, is really helpful in those situations. What, what about public access on these, these, uh, mountain ranges where they're found? Is it, um, what's the private to public, um, opportunity there for mountain quail? Yeah, I'll be honest. It's wide open, um, hmm. uh, for the most part. Um, when you're down in the kind of the, the Medford and Roseburg area, it's a bit of a checkerboard. Um, so you have a checkerboard of BLM land interspersed with, with private lands. So you kind of, you know, you, you do need to, to know where you are. Um, so you can find some of those sweet spots. Um, but, and that's, that's just kind of how things are in the, in the coast range that in, in that area, but gosh, um, you, you get out into Eastern Oregon where, um, where it's just solid BLM. Um, mm. it's, you could have a really good time. There's, um, there's a ton of public access in Oregon. We're, we're pretty wide open between the, between all of our national forests, and all of our BLM, as well as ODFW's access um, areas programs, where we where we pay um, for for access or or we have landowner agreements, um, it's wide open. You that that should never be an excuse for for not getting out in this state. Yeah, how, how's the hunting pressure? Are there a lot of people that hunt mountain quail? I don't think so. I think that there's only a few gluttons for punishment. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we do get a lot of folks that are that are wanting to uh, to finish their quail slam and often mountain quail are, are the last thing on the mm. menu. And so I do talk to a lot of folks that are coming all the way from places like Florida um, and everything in between um, and just wanting to get that get their, their bird. And, and when I talked to them after their hunt, they said, well, we got two and we're happy for it. Mm. Um, each bird is a trophy. <laughs> so I, I do think there, there are people who really do have it dialed in. Um, but, uh, uh, they, but honestly, I, I don't think that they're, that they're heavily pursued just mm. because it's, 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 the habitats are kind of hard on, hard on dogs and knees. So uh, how would, um, how do they taste? Well, just like you would expect to expect them to, there's mm -hmm. uh, nothing. Um, uh, I wouldn't say that they have a specific um, that they have a that they would taste all that different from a California quail or okay. something like that. Okay, you you've mentioned a couple times the the how proud proud you are of the 
the birds that are now in Eastern Oregon. And, you know, that didn't, that happened by a lot of hard work and research, the translocation project to, to get birds there. Tell us a little bit more about that and how it happened in the successes and maybe some of the struggles, because there's a lot of places in the country that would like to to be able to do something like that. But the first step is having quality habitat where you want to bring them to, right? Yeah, that's right. And and uh, and I'll start by saying I can't take any credit at all for the success of this program. That was my predecessor. His name's Dave Badeau. And, um, and this was really um, a, a legacy project for, for him to, uh, to get these birds um, uh, reestablished in Eastern Oregon. And, and um, there was a researcher named Mike Pope, um, who, uh, who also worked for ODFW um, at another time. And, and he, he kind of figured out, um, he kind of cracked the code on, on how to, how to do this and um, started back in the early nineties. And um, I think we moved about 2,500 quail. And wow. um, the, the real secret to success was having um, a robust population to pull wild birds from mm. um, because pin raised birds just don't work um, in, in, you know, it, it takes a lot. I, I always use the anecdote about, about how we got chucker started in, in Oregon back in the, back in the game farm days of the 1940s. We, we pin raised a whole bunch of chucker to get, to get population started out here. It took 40,000 birds to get the population started on Steens mountain. Mm. And, and that's just one population. So um, it's just not efficient to use, to use those pin raised birds. Mm. Um, but tra transplant um, works, works a lot better. And uh, so when Mike Pope first started moving birds, he, um, he puts them on the Deschutes National Forest um, uh, and, and they all had transmitters on and, and where we thought there were a remnant population. And every single one of those new birds paired with um, that did pair um, found found a, a, a new mate in the in the new population. So, or in the in the um, the remnant population. Mm. So we we found that there were birds there. It's just that we they're awful hard. It's awful hard to to um, to find a mountain quail um, when they're when there's there's just not that many of them out there. So they had some some initial success, and then they started um, looking you know evaluating habitat and and um, moving birds and and then we'd tr put transmitters on and we'd hire a technician to follow them around and see how they did and there were successes and failures for sure there were some places where we really didn't get birds established and and others where now they're they're really starting to um to show up um places like um summer lake and the scenes um where uh i think we weren't sure if they were gonna if they were going to get a foothold, but now they're, they really are showing up in, in cubbies. So, mm. um, it's a two bird bag limit in Eastern Oregon. So it's, it's really just, um, more than anything, uh, as, as these birds are starting to show up, we want to protect hunters who think they're shooting a California quail mm. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and not accidentally, uh, put a mountain quail in the bag. So, so we do allow two, two mountain quail per, um, per day, uh, as part of your quail bag in Eastern Oregon. Yeah, I, I always think that at some point mountain quail are going to be the next species that explodes from, a you know, every January on Instagram, the Mern's quail takes center stage, right? There's all these folks going to, you know, Southern Arizona chasing Mern's and, and, and I think that's kind of the focus bird and they hunt gambles and scale. And I look at how beautiful 
the mountain quail is and kind of the rugged country, the adventure component of, of uh, where they live, as well as the, the abundant public land where they live. And I, I'm just expecting at, at some point in the near future for mountain quail to become the, the, uh, the hot species that all these bird hunters gravitate towards, especially if I recall, the Oregon season goes through the month of January too. Is that right? Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, that's right. It runs through the end of January. So, so what do you think about that? Do you think, have you seen any sort of growth in mountain quail hunting or do you think that it's just, you know, it's, it's pretty darn tough and um, you'd be surprised if a whole bunch of non-residents came that way. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I haven't, I don't have great information on that front. And, and um, so we survey our, our Upland game bird validation holders every year. Um, and, and in the past, that's been a phone call to 1% of our validation holders. And then we draw conclusions from that. And it's very rare that someone will answer the phone who is a hardcore mountain quail hunter. And um, it almost never, almost never. And, and when they do, then it just skews the data all over the place, right? <laughs> so um, so what, what has changed on that front is, is now, um, now that we're, we've joined the modern world and we have electronic licenses and all of that, uh, we have email addresses for all of our hunters now for the most part. So now we can survey a larger proportion of our of our hunters and and hopefully we will learn I'll be able to draw some better conclusions about what's going on mountain quail wise because um, we just don't know. Mm. Um, the other thing we do is we collect wings from from uh, mountain quail um, just like we do for forest grouse. So if you if you harvest a mountain quail, um, you can drop it in the forest grouse wing barrel. Um, and then, uh, based on, based on that wing, we can tell whether we can't tell the, the sex of the bird, but we can tell whether it was an adult, um, or a juvenile bird. And that gives us age ratios, which kind of tells us, um, how reproduction's going, that sort of thing. Mm. It kind of gives us a picture in, into effort. Um, so I'd really, I really want to encourage folks to do that. It, it gives your biologists a lot of um, information we can't get any other way. There's no way we can find age ratios of mountain quail, um, <laughs> without a full on transmitter research project so and what folks i guess may or may not know is you've got quite a few different upland species in oregon i mean it, honestly you know let's start with um it's the birthplace of pheasants in the united states right the Will willamette valley did i say it right the <laughs> good job <laughs> so you know owen denny brought them to, to oregon in in the 1892 something in that neighborhood and you've got blue grouse, rough grouse, um, huns, chuckers, um, mountain quail, California quail. What, what am, I, am I missing anything? Uh, let's see. Um, sage grouse. Well, we have sage grouse. Yep. Turkeys. Um, so yeah, yeah, we've got, uh, and two species of blue grouse. So we have, um, oh. both the dusky, um, and the sooty and uh, rough grouse. Um, and we have spruce grouse. You can't hunt them though. Um, we just have a little, we have a little blip of a population mm. um, up in the blues. Um, so that's really more of an information campaign for us to, to help people <laughs> recognize a spruce grouse when they see one and not shoot it. Mm. Um, and yeah, so we're, yeah, we're overrun with, with <laughs> upland game birds in this state. Um, I wish, I wish our pheasants were doing better, uh, you know, 
uh, Judge Denny's old population, there's not a whole lot left of that. Um, it's all it's all built up or the agriculture agricultural practices have changed a lot. Um, and it's there's a lot of grass seed farms and hazelnut farms and mm. vineyards over there now. So most of our good pheasant hunting is over in the east side of the state. Okay. So if you're an Oregon bird hunter, what's the top species that you're chasing? Oh, wow. Um, chucker, I would say, uh, is probably the uh, would be a really good reason to come to Oregon um, just because we have you know, vast amounts of public land and, and our, uh, we had a great chucker year in some of our, um, some of our Northern drainages this year, um, for once. Um, but they're just widespread. They're, they're kind of, uh, all over the place. And I, I just, I think chucker are our new pheasant. <laughs> well, that's, that's another species on my list that I've never chased. And it seems like if I need to do like a year long workout to uh, be ready to go chase mountain quail and chucker in Oregon, but I, I'm up for it. I mean, it sounds like a badass adventure, doesn't it? Well, yeah, it does. And and if you're a chucker hunter, it just uh, if and if you want to go hunt mountain quail, just just add like hip high blackberries into into the mix, and that's what mountain quail hunting's like. So mm. same same um, you know same slope, same climbing hills, but just with like a lot of blackberries and, and brambles and things like that. <laughs> it's not always like that, but, uh, but it, it, it can get a little, uh, it can, it can get a little hard to, to break through some of that brush mm. sometimes. It sounds like fun to me. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's fun. Every bird's a trophy. They really are. They're just so, they're so beautiful in hand. Yeah. There's, I would love to have one in hand. I, I keep looking at photos of them and um, I'm not, I'm not a, guy that uh taxiderm taxidermizes my my species yeah. but i would love to eat one you know i'd and and probably paired with one of those uh willamette valley pinot noirs right it'd be a yeah. be a good fit uh -huh. in oregon yeah. oregon uh um you know dinner that was was made for christmas or something um yeah i gotta tell you about tell you about my um my predecessor dave Badeau. he had this special recipe that that he would bring on special occasions where he would um he would take a, a brace of quail and it may be a california quail or a mountain quail but um and he would he would smoke them mm. and debone them and then um and he would turn it he would make it into a smoked quail dip and um it was just to die for and it was i think it was a ton of work um but man you know mixed up with some cream cheese and um, oh, it was good. Yeah. <laughs> well, as, as I move towards our close and our, our final thoughts, if folks are listening and they do want to make a trip to Oregon, maybe, maybe the mountain quail is the last bird on their, their bucket list. Um, Michael, how do, how do folks reach out to you and learn a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm I'm always happy to talk to folks about um, about mountain quail, and and uh, you can you can uh, just call the front desk at uh, the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife Salem office, and uh, they can connect you with me, and I can certainly give Bob my my contact information. So, um, and then you know it's always good. I'm I'm kind of at the thirty thousand foot level, so I always encourage folks to um, to talk to the bios from the the local area where they plan to hunt and really get that. Uh, that on the ground juice because um, I I don't uh, 
I don't, I don't cover that as much territory in, anymore. So um, I can't tell you what tree the birds hide behind, <laughs> but I can. <laughs> Perfect. Um, Al, closing thoughts for uh, this fascinating conversation on uh, mountain oh, quail. This, this was awesome, Michael. Thank you so much for doing this. And uh, now that I know you're a goose chaser in an urban environment, next our next Western Western quail meeting, we'll have to have some share some of those stories we can't share normally on, on things like this because there's some good ones, I'm sure. But uh, this is fascinating. I, I learned more. Mountain quail is one of the quail I just didn't I, I knew very little about other than that they're the coolest looking bird quail that we got i think in the west so um thanks for everything appreciate it thanks al i'm glad to know we have that goose connection too so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we could probably probably write a book uh, good. any any closing thoughts from you michael that you want folks to know about mountain quail that we didn't touch on uh, boy, I feel like we covered a whole lot of territory. Um, and there's, there's a lot, like I said, that we don't, that we don't know about mountain quail. Um, one thing that we do ask folks that, um, come out to Oregon, um, or, or see a mountain quail, we actually collect those sightings. Um, it's really helpful for us, um, to, to know, uh, where our birds are, especially if you start seeing birds in Eastern Oregon, we collect those so that, um, uh, so that we can keep track of our birds because otherwise they're really hard to find. So. Um, more eyes in the woods is is uh, is really helpful for us managers. Well, I think I need to put my eyes into the mix. I'm <laughs> finding some Oregon mountain quail. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for your time. It's been really fun to talk with you. Thank you very much, guys. All right. That was Al Iden, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's Western Regional Director, along with uh, the wonderful Oregon upland biologist Michael Klein from the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife on the mountain quail. Folks, I'm Bob St. Pierre. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing podcast. I'll remind you to uh, look us up online and uh, become a member of Pheasants Forever or Quail Forever if you are not yet involved in conservation. The birds we love and the places we cherish cherish uh, need you. We need you to make a commitment to the habitat that uh, supports all these birds and the places where our bird dogs love to, love to roam. And on that note, uh, I'll remind you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks for listening. <laughs>